The assembly in which we're engaged tonight is another great blessing to be sure, and as we're all thankful for it. We just made mention a moment ago in prayer of our thanksgiving to God who has allowed us to assemble this way. And surely tonight, as we continue our series of lessons on the book of Isaiah, hopefully we can each be blessed and encouraged by some of the things we'll be considering this evening. I realize the opening lesson in the series was a number of weeks ago at this point. We've had a, f- a few other matters. Certainly the word interruption is not an appropriate word, but other, the Sunday evenings have been directed in a somewhat other way. And so tonight we'll have our second installment in the series. This opening slide is one that to some extent describes some of the features that at least will come our way in a general way this evening. It certainly would be fair to say, would it not, that scattered throughout the 66 chapters of Isaiah are a number of references to religious activities, and many of those highlighted some problems with which the children of Israel had to wrestle. In fact, much of our opening lesson in the series was tailored, or at least directed that way. We saw in Isaiah chapter 1 a rather notable problem And God used the very beginning of the book to point that issue out to them and urge that things might be different. May I go ahead and at least make this observation tonight? We're going to see a mixture. There will be some passages that will lift our spirits and souls to the height of marvelous character of God's providence. There will be others that will remind us of other problems, of a religious character that were troubling the ancient people of Judah. So may I say that we too should learn from some of the issues that they were wrestling with that we might not be guilty of that. But by the same token, oh, what comfort we shall find in those passages that describe the beauty of God's providential blessing for His people. As we do all of that, the middle part of that slide before you makes a rather general statement about the fact that the book of Isaiah, perhaps as much as any other book of the Old Testament, quite often makes a direct statement of application to issues that sometimes are religious, sometimes are political, and sometimes rather directly are ethical or moral. I believe each of us are aware of the fact that every civilization and every culture is going to find itself in positions in which the powers that be make statements, make opportunities, and in fact make assertions. Well, God's people found themselves in that particular situation, too. How'd they react? Tonight, as we come to the opening of meat of our matter this evening, chapter number 2 will be our focus for the next few moments. Brother Dennis just read from Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. And it seems to me that that particular passage is one that should come to mind very quickly as we give thought to the book of Isaiah. In fact, so significant is it that I would invite us to not only reread it, but allow me to pause on occasion, make a few comments as we go. Some of those comments highlighted in the text behind you on, on the wall. Even as I begin to do that, could I point out a rather interesting repetition that can often be a great aid to remembering some of the features of this passage. Notes the following statement. Isaiah chapter 2 Joel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 2 are all such that they find their fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. And notice the repetition of the number 2. Daniel 2, Isaiah 2, Joel chapter 2, 
all pointed beautifully to Acts chapter 2. Let's see how it happened. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Let's pause right there. When Peter quoted, or at least made reference to the last days in Acts chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, on that beautiful day of Pentecost, Peter, by majesty and greatness, stood before them and said, as he quoted from Joel chapter 2, he told them the last days had begun. They were then living in the last days. As you and I give thought to it, here's a prophecy that's going to point forward to the reality of the last days. Maybe it wouldn't hurt us to recollect that Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, quoted this, or at least presented it almost verbatim the same as Isaiah, as Isaiah did. That, that has led many people to wonder, did Isaiah quote Micah, or did Micah quote Isaiah? We don't know. Could it be, however, the Holy Spirit led each one of them to share forth the greatness of this text like this? And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. And immediately we notice a reference to the mountain of the Lord's house. The word mountain indicative of the fact this would be a very strong edifice. It would be that which would carry a greatness and strength and magnitude. But you'll notice it's rather quickly called the Lord's house. Already we should have an interest in wondering, so what is it that's the house of the Lord? What is it that would satisfy and occupy that definition? For as we think of the word house, we think that's where a family dwells, at least in most cases. We aren't left to wonder as we arrive at 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul, in writing to Timothy, would say to him, If I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself, in the church of the living God, which is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the Lord's house. Isaiah thus stated, seven and a half centuries before the Lord ever came to this planet, He stated that there was going to come a time in the last days when the church would be a reality. The church would come into existence. And this prophecy, this text, was a statement about the establishment of the church. Let's read onward. And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. It would be exalted above the hills. Doesn't that immediately remind us of Daniel chapter 2? Where in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he saw this great image. An image that had part of gold and part of silver and part of brass and part of iron. But you may remember that in that same dream, he saw a stone cut out without hands that rolled into the image and crushed it. And the stone became a very great thing that filled the whole earth. Doesn't that sound reminiscent of this? In the same way here, all nations would flow to it. It would be exalted above the hills. The fact that all nations would flow into it was a statement of the universal character of the church. In the Old Testament era, the Israelites, the Hebrews, God's people, you remember you had to be born into that family or proselytize into it. Now, all people everywhere would be invited, would be encouraged. And didn't Jesus say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Mark 16, 16. No wonder as you and I read even further. Might we note this, verse number 3, Many people shall go and say, Come ye, 
let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the, of the Lord from Jerusalem. Might we take note that the church, according to that prophecy, was to be established in the city of Jerusalem. Now maybe that seems as though it's an innocent observation here. But could I offer the thought that that's a powerful litmus test of truth? Any religious organization that did not and cannot trace its origin to the city of Jerusalem cannot be the church. The church was not to begin in New York City. It was not to begin in London, England. It was not to begin in Rome, Italy, nor any other of the thousands of cities upon this planet. Isaiah said it was to begin in Jerusalem. As you and I turn the page to Acts chapter 2, we find that those apostles were assembled in Jerusalem. Jesus had told them in Luke 24, 49, Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And thus, even after the Lord's resurrection, we find that there is where they were tarrying. That's where they were waiting. And so, as Acts chapter 2 opens, we find that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Where was it? Jerusalem. Verse number 5 tells us that very truth. And so, a, a great litmus test. Any religious organization that doesn't trace its origin to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost cannot possibly be the Lord's church. You and I know today that there are many religious organizations who, in fact, make many statements, but they fail in this rather remarkable truth. They might trace their origin to Salt Lake City, Utah. They might trace their origin, yea, to again London, wherein King Henry VIII was reigning. They may trace their origin to some city in Germany, a la the days of Calvin or Luther. But they are automatically eliminated from being the church of the Lord because they didn't begin in the right place. Let's read even further. Verse number 4. He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. When it comes to the discussion of the church, don't we find here a rather amazing statement that her nature would be non-combative. It's true, sometimes there have been religious organizations that would promote their ideology and promote their ways by using guns and swords. It would not be that way with the church. The church doesn't force anybody to be a follower. We invite, we encourage, but we don't make anybody do anything. Because isn't it true that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still? Even God won't make people follow Him. As much as He invites and as much as He would wish it were so, He lets people make their own decision. I know that in the days of the Crusades, about a thousand years ago, there were those who with a sword would force people to follow the way of the Christ. But that's not God's way. This chapter number 2 has been a rather remarkable truth, isn't it? As it spoke about the character of the church and the wonder of its establishment. As we turn the slide, though, and give some thought to chapter number 3, look with me at some of these things as you note them with me. We find in this chapter a rather powerful passage relating to another one of the problems 
indicative of the people of Isaiah's day. Without turning to read the entirety of the chapter, may I direct your attention to verse 16. Isaiah 3, verse 16, and as I read this, listen and see if it doesn't make some statements about a potential problem you and I could face today. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon. The chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets and the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings and the nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel, and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins, the glasses and the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, and instead of a well, said hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. Now I read that to remind each of us we can almost picture it in the vividness of the description, can't we? At the time that Isaiah was writing this, there was a rather notable prosperity among the people of God. Jerusalem was faring well economically. You might notice that in particular a description of the women of the day is given. Now before we let the men off the hook, you may notice in verses 25 and 26, they too are brought under judgment. And there are other verses and other chapters that will make description of them. But don't you find it fascinating to note the description that God through Isaiah has just given? The women were completely aloof as to the major problem. They paraded around, as you can well tell, ornamented rather notably and impressively. But in that ornament, it was all for a show. Their heart wasn't genuinely attuned to the things of truth. Notice again in verse number 16, their necks were stretched forth. You might ask, how was this happening? The women, of that, the women of that day would wear metal rings about their necks, and the more rings that you had was a sign of your wealth, a sign of your place. And so the more rings that you had would stretch your neck upward, and that was supposed to be an impressive thing. Notice, too, that around their feet they wore anklets that would tinkle or make sounds as they walked down the street of the city. The more of them you had, the better of statement that it was. In verse number 17 and verse number 18, you'll notice that this description goes on to describe a number of other features. They would fix their hair correspondingly, and they would wear ornaments that were indicative of their station and the impressiveness that went with it. It was all for a show. But sadly, their heart was not where it ought to have been. You may notice among some of the other things that even included the jewelry they were wearing. We might well pause at this point and quickly say, it isn't wrong for a lady to wear jewels, and it isn't wrong for her to be adorned in a way that would be not only modest, but that would certainly be appropriate. But to wear things just for the sake of drawing attention to yourself, 
there's a bit of wrongness in that. I say that because not only did it lead to issues connected to here, it's reiterated in the New Testament. In fact, would you hold your fingers here and go with me for, for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 3 and listen to a sister way in which Peter had to deal with things touching this subject. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse number 3, speaking again about ladies, about women, it says, "...whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning." One more time, Peter had to give appreciation to the fact that there were some who in his day had chosen to fix their hair in a way just so everybody else would see them. Are we beginning to see a pattern? You might recall in Jesus' day, at least something principally like this was happening. The men would lead a prayer, and they would use words just so everybody else would take note of what words they were using and how oratorical this prayer sounded. Jesus would say in Matthew 6, He's got His reward. He's praying only for the benefit of those that are hearing, but in fact, it's not from the heart. You see, this could be a problem that could plague any of us, not just women, but men alike. How serious it is that we have a heart tuned to the frequency of God, to borrow the wording of 1 Kings 22, verse 14, to have an appreciation of that which is truly a heart affixed on the things of truth. You'll notice that among the texts we just read, God said, I'm going to put a stop to this. Well, of course He did when the captivity came. When the, when the Babylonians came and hauled off the people of God into Babylon, the women couldn't parade around Babylon wearing this. They wouldn't put up with it. God did stop it, didn't He? Shouldn't that be an innocent reminder to you and me today about how that God wants those who genuinely serve Him, who love Him, ostentatiousness, which is an adjective descriptive of this kind of behavior, that's always been wrong. And it still is today, isn't it? No wonder in that connection we've now seen another problem, which was sadly descriptive of the people of Isaiah's day. As we turn the page into chapter number 5, we find that two other observations from this chapter will be very, very illuminating to you and me. The first part of the chapter is going to be our first one. And our next slide will bring us to a consideration of the judgment of God. In the opening verses of Isaiah 5, allow me to read a parable. I know that we are very well aware of parables in the New Testament. And we no doubt think about the Lord's parables which were so far-reaching and so very illuminating. But there were some parables in the Old Testament and here's one of them. Now will I sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Before I read onward, you and I know that a parable is basically a very lovely presentation of something that's an earthly story, but it has a heavenly meaning. That is to say, there's a spiritual significance behind that which the actual story and record presents. So far we've read that there's a certain householder who made a fine vineyard. 
He built a nice wall for it. He put the best grape vines he could find within it. He even built a wine press inside it ready to reap the benefit of the grapes he would harvest. Well, this sounds easy to imagine. But the problem is it brought forth wild grapes. Though he put in it the choicest vine, it grew wild grapes. Let's read on. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. In the parable, God rather directly asked, What more could I have done? I made every preparation for the grapes to be true and genuine, and for the vineyard to be productive, and that it would bring forth what I intended it to do. I did everything possible. How did it then bring forth wild grapes? Let's read on. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. We quickly learn as it concludes what the vineyard was. We aren't just talking about a great vineyard. He said, Israel is my vineyard. He said that Judah is the grapevine I planted. Now it all makes sense, doesn't it? I sent the prophets to make sure that all was well. I had the law of Moses in their hearts so that they would know what to do in order to be right. And yet, though it was supposed to be the kind of vineyard to honor me, it grew wild grapes. It grew grapes that I had never planted. It grew, you see, vines that I had never encouraged. Whereas God had encouraged faithfulness and truth and connection to what, in fact, He had revealed, the vineyard grew what was strange. It grew what was sinful. Don't we learn in this that there was something to be said about the judgment of God? I suppose in light of the coming judgment where God was going to turn His people over into captivity, you could ask, how could a loving God do this? Didn't He explain it here? I had done everything I could have done. I hedged about this vineyard. I prepared a wine press. I planted the best vines I could find. And yet it came out like this. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to take away the border. I'm going to let thorns and thistles grow in it. I'm not going to till it and dig it anymore. I'm going to turn it over to whoever marauders want to come into it. And that's what he did. We should honor the judgment of God. When he gives his opportunities, there will be responsibility for the neglecting of those opportunities. May I say again, when he gives privileges and responsibilities, if those are shirked, if there is failure connected to them, there shall be judgment that follows. That's true of individuals. It's true of nations. In fact, as we arrive at chapters 10 through 13, shortly in our study, 
we shall find that same truth revisited upon nations. For right now, as you can imagine, this beautiful parable was a great teaching element to the people of that day, reminding them about the fact they were to be that prized possession of a vineyard to God, but they had failed. They were wild instead of tame. Doesn't that make an interesting thought? May you and I never be a wild grapevine, but may we be tamed by the nature of God's revelation. But later in this chapter, you may appreciate with me that there is yet more to be said. In fact, in verses 20 and following, if I could direct your attention there, we'll turn the slide and give some thought to the following. What I've entitled, The Problem of Man. Now, this isn't the only problem, but it surely is one of them. And it's a problem that has been not only troubling in the days of Isaiah, but it continues to be troubling to us today. Look at how it develops. In this chapter, as Isaiah again presents to the people some of the choices that they had made, he describes one of them like this. Verse 20, "'Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness.'" that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong wine, to strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against His people. And He hath stretched forth His hand against them, and hath smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still." I suspect that one who did not know better might well have thought that some of that was written in the newspaper last week. I would think it perhaps is descriptive of so many other arenas, perhaps indicative of our present time. Let's revisit verse 20 and see if we don't agree. A woe is pronounced from the language of Isaiah on those that call evil good and good evil. Now, you and I can easily appreciate then that in the days of Isaiah, there was a regular appreciation in the society of that time that something that was actually evil, a sizable number was calling good, referring to it as not only noble, but that which was to be approved and pursued. Not only that, that which was actually good, there was a sizable number who was calling it something that was unapproved, something that was hurtful, something that was evil. Isn't it easy to see they were completely mixed up in their priorities. They were mixed up in their definitions as to what constituted right and wrong. It was a mixed up people. Why? Verse number 24 had told us, they despised the Holy One of Israel. The standard of what was right and wrong, they had had for a long, long time. 
God had given to the children of Israel the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And that had been given to them roughly 800 years prior to this. They knew what the law of God was. They had known about it. They had heard it. And yet, they had turned their attention to some other standard of behavior, some other standard of conduct. And now, what was evil, they were calling good. What was actually upright and noble, they were calling wrong and evil. The verse would go on to say, they put darkness for light. What was actually a beacon and a beautiful presentation that would light the way of people into a better way of life, they were calling that darkness. On the other hand, what was actually darkness? What was corrupt and rather sickening inside? They were calling it light. Talk about mixed up understandings. One final presentation. What was actually bitter, they were calling sweet. And what was actually sweet, they were calling bitter. Now again, we aren't talking about literal things they were eating. It was ways of life. It was the appreciation that went with certain behaviors and choices and conduct. Doesn't it sound familiar? Isn't it true today that there are those who, by virtue of the Word of God, we know very well certain things are just absolutely wrong. And yet men, in their supposed philosophical wisdom, in their scholarly understanding, they hold high the banner of what God says is evil, but they call it good. Now that kind of appreciation, you notice, isn't new. It was happening back then. We ought not be too alarmed then when we read as we just did. What befell this society that lived this way? It didn't go on and on. In fact, in verse number 21, it went along with those that were wise in their own eyes. So notice, they didn't turn to God's book for the standard of rightness. We'll make our determination in our educational wisdom of what's best, and that's what we're going to do. As they did that, of course, they were prudent in their own eyes, their own wisdom. Doesn't it sound a bit like Romans chapter 1? Who worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In that same chapter, Romans chapter 1, wherein those same ones were described like this. Wise in their own eyes, they became fools. Isn't it true that if one gets above your raising in terms of what the standard of right and wrong is, you will soon act foolishly. You'll soon act with abject lack of prudence. For that reason, in verse number 23, they justify the wickedness. So what is absolute wickedness, they justify it. And they pursue it. And they take away the righteousness of the righteous. May I suggest again, it's almost frightening how close to home this hits where we can now see, on occasion at least, not just in foreign governments, but sometimes our own, wherein declarations that touch on matters of religion are made, and what God says is right, some have the nerve to call wrong. And what God says, again, is wrong. Some have the nerve to say, not only is it right, it must be this way. Verse number 24 then says, this is how God dealt with it. As the fire devoureth the chaff, I'm sorry, the fire devoureth the stubble, 
and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness. That kind of decay that's going to come. And it will be a decaying society who begins to uphold stuff like this. As that rottenness works from the inside out, it's going to crumble. Notice it says, their blossom shall go up as dust. That society will crumble. It just cannot maintain like this. For that reason, you'll notice in verse number 25, the anger of the Lord's kindled against them. Isaiah's people were in a very difficult position. But you know, the resolution was so easy. All they had to do was repent. All they had to do was turn back to the Lord, and yet there would be a tremendous blessing held out to them from the Lord. In fact, in verses 26 to 30, as this chapter closes, there were some statements along that line that were in fact made. May we pray for our nation. May we pray that wisdom and real prudence will reign supreme. I know as we often pray that their attention might turn to the Word of God, that they might use that to aid them in making decisions. Well, may we not only continue to pray that way, but that we as a citizenry, as a nation of people, will honor the things of God and demand that of our leaders. Surely in that connection, as we come near the close of our lesson tonight, it perhaps brings us to a point of conclusion that I might describe like this. We've looked this evening at chapters 2 through 5. In some ways, our pace will quicken in some of the chapters that follow because many of the problems that are rehearsed are stated from slightly different angles from these. We will, however, notice some rather dramatic and timeless truths in the chapters to come. And may I go ahead and say some of them again will be exquisitely beautiful, speaking about blessings we enjoy, but some will be sadly reflective of a people gone wrong. And we'll see again how similar sometimes that sounds to today. Some of the matters on that slide we may summarize like this. The church has now begun. It did so just as Isaiah had prophesied that it would. And we are still the blessed beneficiaries of it. It's just as wrong now to simply behave by way of an outward show as it was then. And that parable of Isaiah 5 was a reminder that just as the wild grapes were problematic then, they still are. Didn't Jesus speak about some parables in Matthew 13 in which you and I remember that it was the good ground indicative of a heart that was fertile and right. That stony ground soil was problematic and so was the thorny one. Oh, how we need to put the thorns out of our life so that we can live in that good and honest ground. And finally, the mixed-up morals of our day. We must never allow that to deter us from serving the God of heaven. That faithful few then was a remnant that we shall learn in some chapters that are now to come. And in that remnant, they too, of course, held on to their connection to God just like we will too. Tonight, as we close this particular lesson... If there's someone in this assembly who upon reflection in your life has realized that you've allowed some weeds to start to grow, well, let's make sure to recognize those weeds are of the devil. And he's going to make sure they bring forth a lot of seed. And as that seed continues to bring forth, things are not going to get any better. We need to eliminate the weeds. 
and have the good grapes in your heart and mind, wherein we will be that vine that is a prized possession of the God of heaven. The book of Revelation will talk more about the blessedness of a vineyard and how wrong it can go. May we have a vineyard of our heart that is the right kind. Tonight, if we could be of some blessedness and benefit to you and your response to the gospel's invitation, we would love to do that. As a wayward child of God, you too need to repent just like they did. Make confession of those errors. And as you, in fact, approach the God of heaven, He will forgive you. If we could be of some help that way tonight, we'd like to do it. We want to do it. We'd love to do it. If you would wish to become a Christian, no better night than this. As you repent of your sins after your belief in Him, confess His name and be baptized, and everything is prepared and ready. We could help you at once to do that. Brother Gary has chosen this song of encouragement. Won't you come while together we stand and sing that selected hymn?